0: District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special Tuesday episode of District of Conservation. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. If you just discovered this podcast from tuning to the Blood Origins Roundup, welcome. I hope you enjoy the content here. Today, I'm going to discuss three interesting stories for you all spanning conservation, an update from the new Bureau of Land Management director and whether or not she can actually fix the agency, which has been in turmoil across Republican and Democratic administrations and what some of her priorities are. And not surprisingly, she is definitely pushing renewables on BLM lands. Yet, she still wants to preserve multiple-use management. However, many on the left want to do away with multiple-use management. Interestingly enough, we're starting to see that become more prevalent. But if she can maintain that, that would be great. I'm not sure, given some of her past stuff. We'll also talk about Washington State's cancellation of the Black Bear Spring season coming up soon. And I'll also talk about an interesting partnership between PERK and a conservation group relating to elk. I thought that was a really interesting partnership, so I want to talk about that. Let me know what you think of the three topics in this roundup episode. Tracy Stone Manning was confirmed to be the Bureau of Land Management director about a few weeks ago, and her confirmation hearing certainly was contentious because of some of her past affiliations relating to tree spiking. And some of her positions have been called into question. And I read a new interview she conducted with a local Montana publication, her first interview with Montana Media as director. And like the Biden administration writ large, they want to move away from oil and gas as part of the portfolio for multiple use on BLM lands, Bureau of Land Management Lands. And I talked about this in yesterday's episode as it relates to the new report that came out on the leasing program and their recommendation to hike the fees to make it almost untenable for anyone in oil and gas to bid. And certainly the percentage of it is small. It's minuscule, but it's still going to be quite harmful and it's not equitable to take away certain players and then elevate others. That's just my opinion. But you can go to yesterday's episode if you want the full comprehensive view into that. But unsurprisingly, Stone Manning wants to carry out President Biden's agenda. And she says, I think President Biden has been pretty clear that he expects us to work toward a carbon free future on our public lands across our country. In fact, she said in an interview from her Missoula, Montana home. The article says, but she's also made it a goal to include the public and all interest groups on what the that policy should look like and ensure that BLM's mission of multiple use of its 245 million acres of public lands is met. Our job is to serve many stakeholders and constituencies, she said, and what I want to do is make sure that it is balanced and fair and that people see themselves as part of the process as to how our lands are managed, whether they live in Two Dot or New York City. We're helping to set the table on what the future of energy development looks like in this country, she said. It's going to be renewable, so the decisions that we're making here and now are going to have really long-lasting effects, which is why we've got to get it right and why we're asking the public for their engagement on this topic. And she had said that the 2020 Energy Act set a national goal of 25 gigawatts of solar, wind, and geothermal production on federal lands by 2025, Like I've pointed out before in past episodes, solar and wind are quite questionable on public landscapes, and I think they cause more duress to land, to waters, and they are used and primarily backed up by fossil fuels and and exhaust a lot of fossil fuels, far more than natural gas and oil do. Geothermal is great. I've laid out the case for it. I don't see any effort on the Congress side to see it. Actually, a lot of congressional Democrats do not want geothermal, to be permitted, for it to be streamlined and modernized. So how are the goals of the BLM director who wants to see this, as she tells us, and congressional Democrats, if they're against any reforms to NEPA, which allows you to reform permitting process and to not make it so difficult to explore that. If you want to learn more about kind of the turmoil and the history of BLM, kind of the recent controversies relating to the agency and why them moving the headquarters back east is going to make it harder for them to cooperate and hear from stakeholders. I know some people listening may be thinking, well, why do we have to have an agency out west? It's going to dismantle the agency. It's going to make BLM less accountable and it needs to be in Washington to be fully effective. And the Government Accountability Office report said that if we don't have it sent back to Washington, there's too much corruption. I think a problem with the agency, why we have seen so much controversy attached to it is because for too long, BLM directors and their staff and agency bureaucrats holdovers across different administrations do not go out west to see public lands. 99% of public lands of these 245 million acres lie west of the Mississippi and they don't go there. They enact policies that make it harder for people to live and be productive on working lands. So I talked about this at town hall. I also talked about Colorado's governor praising the move of keeping and maintaining a Western headquarters in Grand Junction, Colorado. So you can read that at my town hall article, which I've included. I'll also include Tracy Stone Manning's full remarks for you guys to read. She's kind of trying to play both sides of the coin here if I'm sticking to the contents of her most recent interview that she did. And something that was pointed out to me that I highlighted on Twitter, and it's not because I'm anti-solar and wind. I think privately, if you want to go through with that, by all means. And I'm also against subsidies for oil and gas too, which I don't think rely on subsidies much anymore. But a group that is certainly no friend to hunters and anglers and does have backing by some more preservationist interests, actually was really key. The Basin and Range Watch group, it's a nonprofit. I had kind of quote tweeted them calling some projects that they highlighted, some solar project, a reckoning for solar and how it can destroy fragile desert landscapes. They said that there are four solar plants in the works that are going to exhaust thousands upon thousands of acres more than nuclear wood more than geothermal wood more that than oil and gas wood and there's two plants in California and two in Nevada so there's the Aratina solar plant which would use 2400 acres and it would potentially eliminate 4200 Joshua trees Oberon solar in California 2700 acres ancient desert ironwoods destroyed Gemini solar in Nevada, which would be 7,100 acres, and that could imperil over a 1,000 hun- a desert tortoises. And then there's also the yellow pine solar in Nevada, 3,000 acres, and it could impact 90,000 Mojave yucca trees. That is kind of a downside to solar and wind, and I've highlighted before there's actually a brewing tension between preservationists. There's division amongst themselves among endangered species activists and solar proponents because of how much land is exhausted use going into effect things of that sort so if you want to learn more you can comb through some past episodes what do you think do you think they should push this renewable push even with some of the cracks through solar and wind some of the kind of hypocrisies with it what do you think? I want to know if you fully believe they should proceed with this. Should they do a case by case basis or blanket statement go through with this? Let me know your thoughts. Let's talk about the Washington state bear hunt that was just canceled. And I've talked about this several times on the podcast. And mind you, I am a political conservative and I have been able to kind of draw a connection between the stacking of wildlife agencies with preservationists who are generally anti-hunting with Democratic administrations overseeing governor's mansions. Kind of similar to whenever state legislatures flip blue, you're starting to see, even kind of anecdotally speaking, but I think it could be quantified by studies. You are starting to see, whenever state governments go blue or become Democrat, the loss of hunting opportunities, more legislation, more regulations to curb opportunities. And we're seeing this in Washington state. So I'm going to put that out there. You may not like that opinion. But Governor Jay Inslee is pretty yoked into kind of the climate change agenda. I don't see any pro-hunting tendencies from him. And the Washington DNR had a vote recently to cancel the upcoming spring hunt. And they voted on a four-to-four tie basis to cancel the hunt with external pressure coming from the Humane Society of the United States. And a lot of bear conservationists have been very upset by this decision. I'll read a little bit more for you guys on this. I want to first read from the Western Bear Foundation, friend of the show, Joe Condilas' organization, featuring the musings of one of their members, a blog post that he had written. Unbeknownst to me and many others until recently, Washington State's gate was wide open and under treacherous assault. Assault from not only within the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife Game Commission, but from the Humane Society of the United States. While hunting in general is always the focus of attack from HSUS, it seems a rather slippery slope attack was performed last week. And this was earlier in November. For the point of this blog, we will be discussing the agency and Fish and Wild Game Commission, two separate but related entities. The commission is made up of nine commissioners, all appointed by Governor Jay Inslee, and confirmed by the legislature. It is made up of four of the east side of Washington, four for the west, and one floater. Currently, there are only eight commissioners, as the ninth has not been appointed yet, for reasons I don't know off the top of my head. Spring bear hunting in Washington is a special draw, meaning you put in for a lottery, basically. Only if you select... 664 tags are divided out to lucky individuals for the state for very specific areas that are receiving damage from the bear, tree damage from peels, or need specific predator management. It's a draw regulated and lasts from April 15th until July 15th. Generally, about 145 bears out of the estimated population of 20,000 bears are taken. And here's what the proposed rule looks like the purpose of the proposed amendments is to carry forward a long-standing recreational hunting opportunity to address bear management by continuing to use recreational hunting under a bear special permit in 2022 the purpose and anticipated effect of the amendments is to continue geographically focused spring bear hunting of black bear in areas where wdfw have observed ongoing human bear conflicts low harvest modification to harvest and inspection procedures To summarize the specifics, maybe some permit numbers in one unit goes down from 10 to six permits and there might be some language edits related to the animal inspection that will clarify to hunters what is expected for harvest check and inspection. Overall, the average hunter reads that and thinks no big deal. Notice there is nothing related to ethics of the hunt whatsoever or even the possibility of canceling the hunt. I will also cite an article from Robbie Kroger, of blood origins he wrote for free range american where i've contributed to in the past and hopefully i will resume contributing some articles there and he goes into detail more about these commissioners and what they think of hunting as a management tool this is very rich since the spring bear hunt is a special permit hunt any proposed changes requires a majority vote to be put into effect by the agency's bylaws a tied vote didn't mean reverting to the old regs but that the special permit season is completely canceled, a drastic step that surprised many. The four commissioners who voted against the regulation changes included the chairman and vice chairman and the two newest, most controversial commissioners, Fred Kuntz and Lorna Smith, both of whom were appointed by Governor Jay Inslee. Neither are hunters. Smith called the bear population models old-fashioned, even though the state's carnivore section manager said that it was the best available science they had to determine quotas. The director of the agency, Kelly Sushwind, said the science is clear and that the hunt does not impair or cause concern for Washington's bear population. They had listed in Western Bear Conservation's blog post that there are 22,000 bears. If this happened in Virginia, oh, all hell would break loose. We have over 20,000 bears, actually estimates of between 18,000 and 20,000 bears. We have a fall bear hunt. To my understanding, we don't have a spring bear hunt. But if this were to have transpired in Virginia, this would anger a lot of hunters. And Robbie continues, the best science shows the 2022 season would result in 145 bears killed from a population of 25,000 to 30,000. That's 0.58% harvest. Why would four commissioners go against the science that states like Washington regularly employ to manage wildlife resources, politics, What's worse is that the hung vote was possible because the anti-hunting governor has refused to fill a vacant commission seat from eastern Washington, a rural part of the state that historically seats a commissioner who understands and supports science and hunting. Now, of course, the Humane Society, which has labeled black bear hunting trophy hunting, which is a complete misnomer because black bears, for one, are not endangered by any means. They're listed of least concern by the IUCN, which is the leader of conservation status and and kind of a conservation leader to determine what is endangered threatened or not endangered or unthreatened and of course they called it a victory after public outcry there will be no spring bear hunt in washington We are deeply pleased that the commission prioritizes the public's humane values and the need to avoid cub orphaning over trophy hunting interests and the desire to acquire more heads, hides, and claws for display and bragging rights. The vote is a turning point for the commission, demonstrating its commitment to managing Washington's wildlife with the best available science. The decision also underscores just how controversial spring bear hunting is because of the great detriments to the bears themselves, including newborn cubs as well as other wild animals who depend on this keystone species in their forest ecosystem. While this vote provides only a stop to the spring bear hunt in 2022, we will continue to work with the commission and our allies to end spring bear hunting in Washington for good. Like I said, this stems back to politics. What are the political leanings of Jay Inslee? He's a Democrat. He stacks the commission with allies. He hasn't stacked that one seat from a more conservative or more pro-hunting region hence why the hunt is not proceeding. Look at state legislatures that have adopted anti-hunting measures in recent years. What is their political makeup? Democratic. You don't see this passing under Republican-led states or Republican governors. So that's something you have to consider when you guys vote, I'm afraid. And in Virginia, we thankfully stopped that from happening because had we continued with Terry McAuliffe again, I suspect we would have seen far more anti-hunting legislation being considered in the state legislature had it not flipped. But also we probably would have seen some edicts handed down from the governor's mansion to make it harder. Or maybe the wildlife agency, our wildlife agency, would have put petitions forward, which they're not allowed to do, uh, what they tried to do with predator management. And thankfully that never proceeded. So how you vote in your state for governor's elections Really does matter, especially as these decisions directly impact you more than the federal government's legislation would. Bad legislation does eventually carry over, it just takes longer to implement in most cases. But state legislation and state actions do impact you a lot more readily and a lot more palpably. So, how you vote matters. And if you don't want to see black bear hunts canceled, vote carefully. And if you live in Washington state, or even don't live in Washington state. I believe there is a petition that is being circulated and I will include it in the link notes for you guys to check out. It's from change.org for encouraging Washington governor Jay Inslee to restore the bear season. Hopefully rational minds will prevail. Hopefully the science that says that wildlife management as a tool will be considered because this is going to, cause a lot of chaos. Look at what happened in New Jersey when they canceled the black bear. I want to talk about kind of this new partnership that I noticed between PERK and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition in what they formed as an elk occupancy agreement. And I think this is the first of its kind. It's a voluntary agreement between wildlife interests and landowners to improve elk tolerance and voluntarily conserve elk habitat. In many cases, a landowner is willing to manage land for conservation but is unwilling to enter a conservation easement which requires conservation in perpetuity. That is when an elk occupancy agreement or a shorter-term habitat lease can provide an alternative. In the Paradise Valley in Montana, conserving wildlife habitat is of critical importance given the increasing pressure of population growth and development. These pressures threaten the habitat integrity of large private working lands of the region that provide essential winter range for a variety of wildlife, including elk, a keystone species of the region's ecosystem. And they're calling this the first elk occupancy agreement in the northern greater Yellowstone ecosystem. They have partnered with a local family ranch in the Paradise Valley to conserve a nearly 500 acre elk winter range area separated by approximately 1.25 miles of wildlife friendly fencing. The designated acreage will exclude livestock and allow for the free and unrestricted movement of elk. The landowner will conduct habitat management enhancement activities, including invasive conifer tree removal, cheatgrass spraying, controlled burning, and further noxious weed treatment when needed in the elk winter range to maintain and enhance the range conditions. And what do they call the conservation benefits that stem from this? The fence will establish this area of the ranch exclusively for elk and other wildlife use. It gives the full supply of forage in the historic elk winter range to wildlife. It will also enable the landowner to better manage lower elevation lands adjacent to the elk winter range area during the summer in a way that will attract wildlife in the fall. As elk spend more time in the winter range area, neighboring farmers and rangers will also benefit from a reduction of close cattle to elk contact, decreasing the potential for brucellosis spread to livestock as well as lessening the damage to fields and haystacks. The general public will benefit as the landowner sets aside an area that historically wintered elk for the benefit of elk and other wildlife. I would be very curious to see the impact of this. I think this is much better and preferable sometimes to government arrangements may be facilitated by government or conservation easements facilitated by government. If private interests can come to an agreement and allow for wildlife to thrive and, and for their operations to continue, I think that should be applauded. That's what free market environmentalism is in its core. Interesting partnership. We will keep tabs on that here at District of Conservation, but that's very interesting from PERC. We've featured Perk several times on the podcast. I've spoken to their president and also to Hannah Downey, on numerous occasions, they run a great organization. I really lean on them, especially for public lands and wildlife issues. I think they do a solid job there. And I think you guys should check them out. But that is a really interesting development on the free market environmental front. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes and leave us reviews. We'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds. All of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me, so engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. I get a lot of requests and my schedule is also quite busy, so you'll see guests come from me. And I'm, but like I said, I'm always open to different guests coming on the show. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode.